Amen. The psalmist says in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord is more precious than gold. And it's sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. And it's that word that we get to here now. Amen? Amen. Be seated. And good morning. Good morning. <laughs> uh, happy New Year. Happy first Sunday of the, the new decade. This is kind of crazy. Um, if you've got your Bible, we'll be in John 13. And while you're turning there, I did want to welcome, if we have anybody that's visiting, uh, this is your first time, or uh, maybe you've been visiting for a few weeks, checking things out, I, I would like to call your attention, in the bulletin, there is a communication card. If you are visiting with us and you haven't turned that out yet, would you, or turned that in yet, would you please fill that out and uh, give us just a little bit of information about you, how we can follow up with you, and then you can drop it in one of the boxes in the back by the door. All we're going to do is send you one email, see how we can follow up with you. We would love to help you any way that we can find a church home. It doesn't have to be this home. We just want to help you find a place where you can hear this precious word of God. Um, So again, we are in John 13. We're going to be continuing in our I Am series. We'll be in that series for three more weeks looking at these I Am statements in the gospel according to John. And today's I Am statement is a little less obvious than the ones that we've looked at so far, but nevertheless significant. So is everybody there in John 13? Yeah? Okay, we're going to read verses 1 to 20, and then I'll pray, and then we'll talk about it. So this is John 13. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. It is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. God, I pray that you would help all of us to think rightly about this word. I pray that you would help me to say only true things about your word. And Lord, that we would behold the example of your son Jesus. We would be overcome with gratitude for his service to us in the gospel. And we would be encouraged to follow his example. That you would make us more like Christ through the preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, if you've been with us in this uh, survey through the Gospel of John through these I am statements, you would have remembered me saying that the Gospel of John breaks evenly into two big parts. So this chapter, chapter 13, begins the back half of the Gospel of John, the back section of the Gospel of, Gon- of John. And it's interesting if you uh, look at the chronology, the way that the Gospel of John is structured, the timing of it. The first half, the first 12 chapters, what's often called the book of the signs that contain all of the signs that Jesus did as well as a lot of his teaching and debate with the religious leaders that culminated in what we saw last week, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Those 12 chapters, the first part covers more than three years of Jesus's life. And then as we turn into chapter 13 and all through the rest of the book, we get three days of Jesus's life, three very important days that begins with five whole chapters dedicated to Jesus's last conversation with his disciples. And then that same night in chapter 18, Jesus will be arrested. In chapter 19, he will be crucified. And then in chapter 20 and 21, he will be raised and will appear to his disciples. And so it's three very important days that John wants to really slow down and spend a lot of time thinking about. And he begins that whole section talking about this incredible gesture that Jesus does, the washing of the disciples' feet. And that's something, I think, foreshadowing. It's an enacted parable, a dramatization of everything that's going to follow the rest of that book. So we're going to break this up into three sections, each of them dealing with Jesus as the servant. And we're going to begin in verses 1 to 3 and also verses 18 and 19, which kind of form bookends to this section uh, considering these glimpses that John gives us of what's going on in Jesus's mind. So this is going to be the mind of the servant. I don't know if you noticed really throughout this whole passage, the repetition of the verb to know. John shares a lot about what Jesus knows. We see in verse one, Jesus knows that his hour has come to depart out of the world and go to the father. That's Uh, referring to our, referring to Jesus' crucifixion. That's what the the whole gospel has been driving to. And now we're finally at the hour when Jesus will be hung on the cross and laid in the tomb and then raised. Jesus knows that it is that hour. And in verse 2, Jesus knows by whom that crucifixion is going to come about. In verse 2, it says, The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' disciples, one of the 12 that had been with him for those three years. It was seemingly one of Jesus' closest friends, and yet we know in just a, a matter of hours, Judas would betray Jesus to the religious authorities that had been seeking to put Jesus to death for what amounted to just a few hundred dollars in today's 
currency. Judas would betray Jesus, and Jesus knows this, but Jesus also knows, interestingly, that there is satanic influence behind what Judas does. So, so it says the devil had put it into Judas Iscariot, into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray, betray Jesus. That doesn't mean that Judas's responsibility is somehow taken away. It means that instead acting in this is this cosmic opposition to the work of the Son of God, that Satan hates the Son of God and is deceived enough to think that he can stop the work that Christ came to fulfill. But we know that that's ridiculous because in verse 18, skipping down, Jesus says, with respect to this betrayal, that it will come, that he knows whom he has chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a reference to Psalm 41. And what Jesus is saying is in his betrayal, there's actually three actors. There's Judas, there's Satan, and then there's the sovereign work of God who prophesied some 700 years before this night that Jesus would be betrayed by someone that sat at a meal with him. So Jesus knows that his betrayal is coming, but it is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is not an accident. This is not a hiccup. This is the hour that God has prepared for Jesus to arrive at, and Jesus knows that he is walking in obedience to God's plan, even to the point of death on a cross. And, and we might ask ourselves at this point, well, why? Why would Jesus walk in obedience to that plan, knowing that it's going to lead to his crucifixion? Well, apart from just his love for the Father, his desire to obey his Father, we see in verse 1, Jesus knows that he has loved his own, and he has loved them to the end. So we know that everything that we see in this passage is coming out of love, and that Jesus will love his own, those whom he has chosen, all the way to the end. That's a really interesting phrase. It's probably a play on words that John is using. That, that could mean he loved them completely. He loved them to the max, to the full, but it also could mean he loved them to the end of his life, which is where this is going. So already we can see that there's some, some dense verses here, but there's one more very important thing that we see that Jesus knows in verse three. Jesus knows that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Just think about what that is saying. All things, God has given all things, the whole universe belong to Jesus. That Jesus is from God. He is going back to God. This is a magisterial statement. This is a statement of Jesus's lordship. Jesus knows that he, next to the Father alone, is the supreme being in the universe. And this comes out more in verses 18 and 19 when Jesus tells his disciples about his betrayal that was going to come by one who has shared a meal with them. Then what is he saying? Verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. And there's our I am statement as we've been going through these. It, it, you may have noticed that I read it that way. You could say I am he, that's better English, but in Greek it just says ego eimi, 
I am. And that's obvious what Jesus is doing there when he says that. It's what we've been looking at this whole time. It's a reference back to Exodus 3 when God says that his name is I am. Yahweh, Jehovah, I am. This is a reference to Exodus 3, but many scholars also think it's a reference to Isaiah 43, verse 10, which is, this is really interesting. I think this is, this is pretty cool. In Isaiah 43, verse 10, God says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. It's the same, same thing. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So do you hear the similarities in that? Jesus is saying that you may believe that I am. It sounds like what God was saying in Isaiah 43. What is God saying in Isaiah 43? Well, in that section and really several times in the book of Isaiah, God predicts something is going to happen. He tells Israel something is going to happen before it happens as a proof that he alone is God. He says, look at your idols that you've made. Which one of them can tell you before it happens what's going to happen? They can't, but I can because I alone am God. There is no other God. And I'm telling you this is going to happen now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am. And Jesus is doing the same thing. Do you see that? Do you see that in John 13? Jesus is saying, I'm telling you how this is going to go down so that when it does, you may know that I am. Jesus is calling himself, I am. He's doing the same thing, predicting something with with perfect foreknowledge, the only way that God can. Jesus is saying, I know I have all things in my hand and I have come from God and I'm going back to God. Jesus is perfectly aware that he is the supreme being in the universe. And knowing this, knowing this in his mind, He's about to stand up from the table, strip down, grab a towel, and start wiping his disciples' feet. It's incredible. So in verses 4 to 11, we get the work of the servant. The work of the servant. Verse 4 says, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And remember the context here. This is first century Palestine. There are no paved roads. All of the roads are dirt, probably mud, probably manure. Okay, they're dirty. Everybody's wearing sandals if they're wearing sandals at all. And they're walking from one place to the next. So your feet would get very dirty. And so it was customary when you came into somebody's house that you would wash your feet before you sat down. And you couldn't just, you know, stick your foot under a faucet, right? That somebody had to wash your feet. And there was a lot of status connected to who was doing the washing. It was always someone of lower status that would wash the feet of someone of higher status. Usually there would be a servant or a slave in the house that would be prepared to wash the feet of everyone that entered into it. And even at this time, many Jews argued that it wasn't even appropriate for a Jewish servant to wash feet. It could only be a Gentile servant. So this is the lowest task that you can be assigned in your society. But if there wasn't a servant, if there wasn't somebody designated to do the foot washing and people enter into a house, well, then it fell to determining who had the lowest status in the room. That's awkward. 
And that's probably what's going on here because we can tell from the the context their feet have not been washed. Nobody has assumed that role of the lowest in the party. If you read the book of Luke, when Luke describes this same setting, which is the Last Supper, they share very different details of what happened there. But in Luke chapter 22, at the start of the Last Supper, he says that an argument arose among the disciples about who was the greatest among them. I think you can see that this is probably in connection to this, that they are trying to rank themselves. They are trying to determine who's the one that should be wiping everybody else's feet because I'm not going to do it. And this is, this is what we do in our hearts, isn't it? It's amazing to think about how much of our lives and how much of our mental energy is spent ranking ourselves. Maybe not out loud, but we are always trying to determine where we stand in the room. Do I make more money than that person? Did I go to a better school than they did? Are they more attractive than me? Am I a better mom than she is? We're always trying to put ourselves in this kind of order, and maybe it's not always to be the greatest in the room, but we're certainly always trying not to be the last. I think that's, in reality, some of our deepest fears is to be exposed as being the lowest person in the room. And so that's what the disciples are doing. They're fighting. No one has taken that role of being the lowest person. And Jesus, knowing that he is God, stands up, strips down, takes on the even appearance of the lowliest in their society by tying the towel around his waist. And he starts washing their feet. And and it is indescribably shocking what Jesus is doing. And it's even more shocking for us because we know with even more knowledge who Jesus is, but even the disciples would have probably been speechless. The room would have just been quiet You would have just heard the splashing sound of water. The padding sound of the towel, drying feet as Jesus goes to Thomas. And then James. And then Matthew. And then Judas. He washes Judas' feet. What does that even mean? I... I can only think that that, that's an expression of the depth of God's love. Holding in his hand the heel that will be raised against him and and he washes it. Bartholomew, John, and then he gets to Peter. And Peter says what they've all been thinking. Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? That doesn't make any sense. I should be the one washing your feet. What does Jesus say? What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. After what? After the cross. It starts to clue us in that there's more going on here than just an act of service, that this is pointing to the work that Christ is going to do On the cross, in verse 8, Peter says to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, 
you have no share with me. No share, no portion. Or in other places, it's translated inheritance. You don't have an inheritance pointing to the end times blessing that every believer would receive from God, the share in the heavenly kingdom in eternal life that we have with Jesus. Jesus is saying that if I don't wash you, you do not have eternal life. You cannot have eternal life. This is, this is an important truth. How is that true, that no one can have a share with Christ unless he washes him? It's because sin makes us dirty. You have to understand this about sin, about what it means to break God's commandments. Sin defiles us. It makes us impure. And what Jesus is saying is that you cannot have fellowship, even eternal fellowship with a pure and holy God if you are dirty. I, I think about it like this. My grandmother is a neat freak. Anybody have a grandma like that? I know a lot of grandmas are like that. My grandmother will not abide a speck of dust in her house. It is pristine. It is immaculate. But what was really funny is that my grandma used to live on a farm in Oklahoma. And so we would go to grandma's house. We would go visit grandma and we would go out and we'd do stuff on the farm. You know, we would feed cows and we would ride horses and we would just get filthy. And then we would come home at the end of the day and my grandma would be standing at the front door like this. You are not coming into this house. I don't care how much I love you. You are not bringing that dirt into here. It's pristine. And so what would she do? She would make a strip down right there in the front, in the front yard. And then she would say, get in the mudroom. You know what a mudroom is? It's like a, a room kind of adjacent to the house where we would, we would wash. And it wasn't until we were washed that we could enter into fellowship with Grandma. That's what heaven is like. And that's what sin is like. Your sin creates a separation between you and your God and there is nothing that you can do to clean yourself up. That's why we stress so much that your good works do not cancel out sin. You can't do more good works to enter into fellowship with God and to eternal life. You have to be washed. That defilement has to be taken away. Think about it like this. If your hands are dirty... No amount of rubbing trying to remove that stain is going to take it out. It just makes the mess worse. You have to have washing external to you come in, cleanse you, and take that defilement away. And here's the good news. Jesus will wash you. Amen? That's the gospel. God says, "Uh uh-uh, you cannot get in here like that. But look to Jesus. The washing has been made available for you. So do you see that in what Jesus is doing in this gesture of washing the disciples' feet, there's so much more than than a physical washing. This This is fundamentally Jesus enacting the gospel, dramatizing the work of the servant who loved sinners, dirty sinners, so much that he would rise up from his place in heaven, would come down off of his throne and enter into this life in the form of a human servant. 
in obedience to the Father. Why? To die for your sins so that you could be made clean. Did you notice that verse 1 of chapter 13 begins with a reference to the Passover? That's not an accident. God perfectly timed these events so that it would play out, the death of Christ would play out right at the same time that the Passover lamb would be sacrificed. It's so obvious what God is doing. He's putting Jesus forward, as he says in chapter one, as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The perfect, clean, pure sacrifice that takes your sin off of you, takes your defilement away from you and onto himself and suffers the consequence that that defilement deserves, suffers that being cut off from God on your behalf so that you can be made clean and enter in and have a share with God. The book of Revelation in chapter seven describes believers, those who have believed in Jesus as those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Isn't that an interesting picture? Dirty robes dipped in deep red blood and then they come out as white as snow. But that is the gospel. And this cuts through that argument about status that they were having. This blows up those categories of ranking ourselves really in two ways. First, this means that no matter how great you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you stand in this life, you're still a dirty sinner. And as somebody said, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. Apart from grace, we are all separated from God. We are all in the same boat. We are all wicked sinners. So who cares what you've done? Who cares who you are apart from grace? But more importantly, what this means is that whoever you are and however low you think you are, maybe somebody in here thinks that that they've sinned so much that God could never love them. God could never forgive them. Maybe you have so much guilt. What this means is that the God of the universe rose from his seat and took a place below you because he loves you. Because you are that valuable to him. You are that honored to him that he took a place underneath you so that he could clean you so that you could have a share with him forever. And that is the most empowering reality if you can get a hold of this, who, who cares how much money you make? Who cares what your job is, where you went to school, where you live, how you look? Who, who cares? God loves you enough to wash your feet. But if you don't let Jesus wash you, then you are not clean. Okay? If you don't believe in that gospel, if you won't confess that you are dirty and you need an external washing and that that is available only in Jesus Christ, then you are not clean. And I think Judas is a great example of this. Don't be deceived just because you're in this room into thinking that you are clean. Judas was with Jesus for all of those three years. He heard the same teaching, but he didn't believe. So he wasn't clean. He didn't have eternal life. Let Christ wash you. Admit that you need that washing and he will wash you. And I think Peter gets this in verse nine. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. 
And we like to laugh at Peter because he kind of gets out over his skis sometimes, but that's a good response, isn't it? If Jesus says, I, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me, then that's right to say, then wash everything, man. Because I want that. That's right. But then Jesus takes it to the next, next level. He kind of shifts metaphors a little bit in verse 10. He says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. It fits into this metaphor. You know, if you take a bath in the morning, you've washed your whole body, and then you're walking from one place to another, and your feet get dirty. Well, you don't have to wash your whole body again, but you do have to wash your feet. And Jesus is, is applying that to this spiritual reality. Once you have believed in Jesus, once you have taken advantage of that washing, once you have been washed, you are clean. Your sin is taken away and no amount of sinning will ever defile you to the point again that you cannot have fellowship with God. It is once and for all, as we would say, you are justified, you are made right with God and nothing changes that. That's good news. You're already clean, completely clean. But our feet do get dirty. Even though we have believed in God, that doesn't mean that we are perfect, we still sin. And so what Jesus is saying is that part of the Christian life, having confessed our sin and believing in God, is a continual act of repentance. It's as Martin Luther famously said, when our Lord bid us to repent, he meant that the whole Christian life should be one of repentance. Every day we should recognize, I've sinned. And we should feel that weight, that sin is defiling and it would otherwise separate us from God were it not for the work of Christ. And we should not be okay with our sin. We shouldn't sit in it. We should confess it. And then we know that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9. Jesus is faithful to cleanse us. He's faithful to wash our feet. That's the gospel. And that's what he's acting out in this gesture. And, and we could just go home right now, right? We could have just thought about that and thought about the washing and thought about what it means to walk in continual repentance. And that would be good. But the, I think the weight of this passage is actually in the verses that follow. In verses 12 through 17 and in verse 20, where we get the example of the servant. In verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And I love passages like this when the Holy Spirit just kind of puts it on the bottom shelf for us, you know? This does not, not take a lot of study to understand what Jesus is talking about right here. I've done this as an example. You do this. Wash each other's feet. Now, is he saying literally we should go around washing each other's feet? No. I think what he's saying is the same thing that the Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians chapter two. Why don't you turn there in your Bible, Philippians chapter two. It's to the right a little bit if you're in the book of John, it's just to the right. It's hard not to read John 13 and, and not think about Philippians chapter two. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing, this is verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, or have the same mind as Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you, by the way. Verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess. Everybody will know what Jesus knows, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now those are incredible verses considering the work, the person of Jesus. But don't miss the main verb in that passage, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Act like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Remember what Paul says in verse three, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? He's here in this room with his disciples. They're arguing about who is the least among them and who is the greatest among them. And Jesus says, don't cling to status. Don't feel like you are entitled not to serve one another. Don't go around saying in your heart, oh, no, no, that's beneath my pay grade. I got promoted exactly so I wouldn't have to do that anymore. Don't come home at the end of the day and say, look, I have worked hard. I've made all the money. This is not my job. Don't rank yourself in your heart and say, I am entitled to not be inconvenienced by my children. I am entitled to not be interrupted by this person. I am entitled to not be made uncomfortable by this need. What Paul is saying in Philippians is, you know who was entitled? Jesus. Jesus was entitled to everlasting praise in heaven. He was in form equal with God. And what does it say? He didn't consider that something to be grasped. He didn't think of that as something to be held onto, to be clutched tightly. Jesus emptied himself. He gave it away. He took the lowest form. He actively stepped into the lowest position to forgive you, to serve you. And he's asking us to do the same. Jesus says in verse 14 of our our passage, if you go back to John 13, he says in verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. It's called an argument from the greater to the lesser. If, if Jesus was not too good to wash your feet, then who are you to say, it's not my job to step in and meet that need? Who are you to say, I'm entitled to be served rather than to serve? Who are you to say, I won't forgive you? 
where I won't apologize to you. I will not be reconciled. You can come be reconciled to me, but I'm not gonna be reconciled to you because I think that's another aspect of this. Just as there's this spiritual element to what Jesus is doing as this picture is the forgiving washing of the gospel, I think Jesus is also saying, you guys gotta forgive one another. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter four. Forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. It is still the height of pride to say, no, I am entitled to hold on to this person's guilt. I'm entitled to hold on to my unforgiveness. Jesus says, no. I came to serve, not to be served. And you need to follow my example, even if it hurts. In chapter 15 of the book of John, Jesus says this to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the work that Christ has done for us. He laid his life down for us and then he's calling on his disciples to do the same thing. Lay down your life for your friends. And I don't think that for most of us is going to mean actually dying for each other. You know that that happens? There's lots of stories of that. Maybe even some of you will be called to be martyrs for the faith and for your brothers and sisters to actually give up your life. But you know what? As I was thinking about this, I think in some ways that sounds easier to actually die to help somebody. Because once you're dead, you're dead. And then you get to enter into eternal blessed fellowship with the Father. It gets easier after that. But I think what Jesus has in mind is, is the kind of thousand little dying to ourselves that happens every day and, and then we just have to deal with the consequences. And we have to die to ourselves and, and our pride and admit to that person that we were wrong. That we have to give some of our money to the point where it hurts that we have to give some of our time that we would have rather used somewhere else but that's love greater love has none than this that someone lay down his life for his friends and i think this especially applies to people in the church to other believers this is what jesus is getting at when he's in this room with only disciples And he says, wash one another's feet. Obviously, as Christians, we should want to serve everybody. We we should want to serve sacrificially those outside of the church. But Jesus is saying, no, within the church especially, this should be a community of self-sacrifice, of needs meeting, of loving one another, of forgiveness. This is to define who you are as my people. And, And we see why in verse 16. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to send you. You are going to be my messengers. This anticipates what Jesus is going to say to them in in chapter 20, verse 21, after he's raised from the dead, right before he gives them the Holy Spirit. He says to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So this is the, the work that Jesus is giving these disciples to do. This is kind of the theme of this whole farewell discourse, these next five chapters. Jesus knows that he's about to leave these guys. And they're going to continue his work. 
As the Father sent him, he's sending them out as his messengers. And they're going to have a message to proclaim. What message? That gospel. That gospel of sin being defiling and the grace of God being washing. And of God's humble self-sacrifice and love. This gospel of Jesus who came down to serve us. And Jesus is saying, you're going to proclaim this gospel with your words. But you better back it up with your life. Because nobody's going to believe it if you talk about the values of self-sacrifice and forgiveness if you guys are fighting constantly about who's the greatest in the room. If you guys are unwilling to love one another. What, what kind of love of God would people think that you're talking about if you're not willing to love one another? Jesus says, no. You are going to be a people that serves one another. You are going to be a people that loves one another because that will testify to the gospel. So just as Jesus going around washing their feet was, was an enacted parable of the gospel of him dying so that their needs can be met and they can have eternal life, Jesus is saying the Christian's life should be filled with thousands of little enacted parables of the gospel. That you should live your life in such a way that it is shocking. That you should be so sacrificial with your time, that you should be so interested in other people's needs. You should be so quick to resolve conflict, even amongst one another, that people outside look in and they say, what is y'all's deal? Why are you like this? Why are you so loving to them? Why, Why are you so loving to me? And then we would say, I'm a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth who even though he was in the form equal with God, didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he gave up what he had to meet my need, to forgive my sins. What I've done for you, this little gesture, this is just a small picture of what God can do for you in Jesus Christ. Do you know him? And in that way, the gospel will shine out from our church, from the brothers and sisters, that we would live the gospel even as we preach the gospel. To this end, look at verse 17. We'll close with this. This is so encouraging. Jesus says to them, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the great paradox in serving because serving often is sacrificial. It does hurt, it comes at cost to us and yet there is blessing that flows out of it. God himself says it is, be- it is more blessed to give than to receive. And this word blessing, it's such a big word. It means, it means happiness, it means flourishing, it means joy, it means the love of God, it means sharing in that portion that God has for us. Jesus says if you do this, If you do this, if you serve, if you wash each other's feet, you will know blessing. Isn't that what we want? To know the blessing of God, to be blessed by God. This is how you are blessed by God because in serving, you become much more aware of the gospel as it applies to you. As you lay down your life for someone else, you are just reminded by the Spirit, yeah, that's what God did for me. No, I didn't deserve it. I deserved a lot worse than this. Praise God. And you know what God knows. The joy that comes from sending your love out to meet the need 
of someone else because that's a foretaste of eternal life. When we are all built up into perfect harmony, into a unity where love flows out of God to all of us around, it's reciprocated, it's reflected back that as we serve more, we have a foretaste of life to come. So until that day, wash one another's feet. Let's pray. Lord, what an incredible gospel that we were so sinful, having sinned against you in our thoughts and in what we've said and in what we've done and what we haven't done. God, in so many ways we have separated ourselves from you, have defiled ourselves, have, have been so unholy. And Lord, you made us clean. You gave us your son to die so that we could be made pure. You have served our greatest need and lifted us up so that we have a share with you. God, if there's anyone in here that hasn't believed in that, that hasn't confessed their sins and hasn't confessed you as the only savior, Lord, I pray that you would help them do that even right now. And God, for all of us, would you help us to live this out to not be proud, but to be humble like you were, Lord. We can't do that by ourselves, but you give us your spirit. You've sent us with your spirit. Lord, help us to love one another in such a way that it really does shine the light of the gospel into this world, Lord, and help us to proclaim that gospel of your incredible love so that people are saved and have a share with us as we share with Christ. Amen.